everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann. Doc Searles and I are talking to Kyle Rankin today about writing tech books. Because who among us, especially those of us who work in tech, has not thought about writing a tech book, but had no idea where to start? Okay, do I sound like an infomercial? Anyway, thank you, Kyle, for joining us. I understand you've written a book to help us all out. <laughs> with the struggle that is writing a tech book. You're getting getting the idea from our head to paper, which is, you know, half the battle. So, Doc, you've written a bunch of books. Kyle, you've written a ton of books. I, I have not. It's not necessarily on my uh, bucket list, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people who are listening have that item, definitely, uh, at, least, at, at least on that list somewhere to do, to do at some point in their career or lifetime. So let, let's, let's just get into it. Tell us, tell us about the book that should be out about now, possibly today when this, whenever this episode goes live. Yeah, so it's the whole idea behind the book started when I was writing my, uh, my most recent pre book before this, uh, which was a collection of Linux Journal articles um, in, into one big book. And it was my first sort of foray into self-publishing and everything. And, and we talked I, about that on a previous episode, which yeah, I will link. Yeah, and I ended up giving myself a crash course in LaTeX and a crash course in all these different things um, in addition to, you know, all of the things you normally do when you write a tech book, plus all of this extra stuff to publish it yourself. And I had a number of people when I was just sort of talking about being excited about doing this book, the, my previous book, they said, well, are you going to write an article or something about how all the stuff you learned when you published this book? And after like three people asked me about that in the same day, I realized, you know, there's probably a book in this, you know, not, not specifically just self-publishing, but just how to write a, a technical book in general, because I, I've run into a number of people who uh, all like experience in some, some aspect of technology and have aspirations maybe to write a book someday about it, but they have no idea where to start. And, and so I decided, well, I mean, I've, I've written a lot of different books for a lot of different publishers and each one's a little different, like each publisher's different uh, and the approach is different, but I could probably sort of condense all of that into a how-to guide essentially. And that's, and so I start after I published that the previous book, then I immediately started working on this and just most of it is written, is aimed toward traditional publishing because in my mind, if you are someone who has never written a book before, uh, but you have a lot of technical expertise that I think, and I advocate in the book, I have a whole section on this, that I, that you should start with a traditional publisher for a lot of different reasons. But among them is just, there's, it's already quite a bit of a learning curve to write for, uh, to write a technical book anyway. And having a traditional publisher just sort of helps guide you through that. But um yeah, I mean, this is so in summary, I mean, we can talk about a lot of the stuff uh, sort of focus on each of these individual things. But in summary, it's basically walks you through step by step why technical books are different, like what's different mm -hmm. about them and all of the unique things about that, starting from having an idea about something you'd like to write about and gauging whether, you know, it helps you. I have a section on vetting the idea all mm -hmm. the way through the editing, getting a publisher, writing and editing it, formatting it, uh, including formatting it with LaTeX if you want to, all the way to public, you know, getting promotion to even second revisions to the, like the full life cycle of the book. So I, I have uh, so many questions, but I, I would like to point out like, so Kyle, you sent us a 
advanced PDF copy, which I appreciate. Uh, I, I did go through, I have not read it cover to cover, but I did read through a few sections and, and I went through the table of contents and kudos to having it incredibly well organized because I found myself yeah. looking at the table of contents and going, well, if I, you know, how, how would I think about this? Well, I, at first I wonder this and, oh, okay, there's a heading for that. And I'm like, but then what about, oh, there's a heading for that too. <laughs> like sort of like answering all of my questions that I was thinking in my head as I'm scanning the, the list. But, um, but you know, the thing you just said actually was obviously probably the first thing is vetting the idea. But I would think that, and probably both of y'all can answer this, but in the case of going with a traditional publisher, I mean, vetting the idea is is something that you do with them, right? But it, I, what is the difference between the, the process of pitching that, but also just deciding what to pitch? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, I, I separate those two for a reason. One, you know, the, you want to have enough confidence in your own idea. There, there's a lot of effort that goes into pitching a publisher. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of work on your own side, creating an outline, plotting through the entire book uh, in an outline form, creating a book proposal, all of that sort of thing. But before you get to that, you, you, you know, there's a number of different ideas you might have for a book based on your expertise and different angles. And I think the best process to start with is just to vet it yourself uh, based on your experience with the topic. And then whether it's there, there's a lot of different things to, that that go into it, which is why it took a whole chapter to talk about. But mm-hmm. basically and also, by the way, uh, this chapter about the idea is the one that I've chosen for my sample chapter. So this is something that everybody can read, can you oh, know, download awesome. okay. and read through. And, and but among the things to consider is one uh your own expertise. You know, the one question is how how experienced or how knowledgeable do you have to be? Do I have to be an expert to write a book on a, on a topic? And the answer is no, you don't have to be. I've written plenty of books where I wasn't exactly an expert on it. Definitely not when I started the book. Now, after you write a book on a subject, you, mm-hmm. you tend to become an expert in it in the process. But there's this balance between uh, knowing enough about a topic that you you are experienced in something, you've done something more than one time or something, you you have deep knowledge so you can explain it to a beginner uh, without necessarily having full expertise in everything. Like there's there's examples where there are a number of books I've written where I there there's always like one chapter or one facet or something in a book where I've never actually done that particular thing before, but I'm well experienced in the rest, knowing that in the process of writing this book, I will then, you know, sort of level up and, and get those skills in this particular thing to write about it as well. Because there's always, it's, it's very rare that if you want, especially when you work with a publisher, all of the different aspects you want to write that the topic can cover, there's always something that they want you to cover that you maybe just because you're, you didn't need to do it as part of your job or whatever you don't, that you don't do. So you have, Part of it's that the other thing to consider is timeliness. So beyond mm-hmm. let's let's say that you've decided, you know, I have the right balance of expertise in this topic. But also, you know, there's this weird balance. And this is something unique about technical publishing, I think, particularly. While, while a lot of other nonfiction books, uh, topics have some level of trend, like cookbooks, you know, they tend to follow some level of trend. But technical books are s- special in that there's like this combination of it needs to be very cutting edge, but not so cutting edge that there isn't a market for it. You know, like if I'm writing about mm-hmm. a cutting edge technology that only 10 people use right now, <laughs> then I'm mm-hmm. selling 10 books, right? At, at most. Uh, so you have to find this, this uh, almost like this curve of emerging technology is one of the areas for ideas where you're working on something that's pretty cutting edge, 
but uh, is not yet 100% mainstream, but is on the cusp of becoming mainstream, like it's starting to get a little bit of mainstream attention. Uh, that's often a good idea because publishers maybe don't have a book about it yet. Uh, and maybe they're even looking for someone to write a book on that topic. The, the other end of it is something that has a lot of mainstream attention and interest, but maybe you have a unique spin on it or you know a unique take on using a, a mainstream technology for a specific new purpose. Like for example, you know, like right now it would be X for AI. For AI. It is. I was you know, about like, to say, it's about mm -hmm. AI, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you have, you know, use, use an existing established technology t for machine learning or AI, that's a book. You know, that's a great right. book idea right now. It occurs to me that I, in 24 years of writing for Linux Journal, I was not an expert on any of the things I wrote about. <laughs> Maybe a little bit Likewise. on a couple of things. Yeah. If I wrote about radio or if I wrote about a little bit for a while on copyright and open source and broadcasting, that kind of thing. But the rest of it, you know, not really. Well, I think we were, we were all making it up else? as we go along to an extent. Exactly. I mean, I that's, know, that, yeah. but that's the nature of technology. That's uh, at some point you have, you just, after so many years of it, you grow to accept that we're all, it's, it changes too, too quickly. We're all making it up as we go along. We're, we're laying the runway as we're, as we're taking off. Right. So, so, so you, so you self-published this, right? This is, this is self-published or. Yeah. Yeah. So this one, my, my previous book that was self-published was, was almost like the prototype, you know, to try this out. I had the material, I wanted to try out the process and see if I liked it, liked the result, uh, and all of that. And so this is with this is also using the Lulu imprint, like my last one did. Okay. I mean, it, okay. yeah, in a way, it's it would be it's better beyond all of that. Just beyond the fact that I'm I'm just sort of still testing out the self publishing waters with this. Uh, also, I think having it be self published is pretty useful because I'm it allows me more leeway to take a platform agnostic approach to explaining to people how to write a book. Because imagine if I'm writing for a under a particular publisher, and then I'm talking about how to how to vet your publishers or how to you know how to pick a publisher. It I don't know how open some publishers would be for me to talk about all the other publishers that they are competing directly mm -hmm. against, you know, um, and and links to how to pitch them, and, you know, yeah. So, so you published with the Switzer through the Switzerland of publishers, sort of. I mean, you didn't was Lulu a publisher here or a formatter? What? They're, they're, they? they would technically be classified as an imprint. So I did all of the okay. writing and I've, you know, all of, all the responsibilities for writing, editing, formatting, uh, creating a print proof, all of that is 100% on me. They mm -hmm. are providing the print on demand service and they're okay. providing a e-commerce platform to sell the book and allow the book to uh, be distributed to say Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all of that. So that's their part of it. And it, because I bought an IS, I got a, a free ISBN through them, then they're listed say, as the you, imprint. What is your ISBN through? And yeah, yeah. So they provided the ISBN. If you do that, then they're listed as the imprint. So it's so it's Lulu's the imprint on the book. But uh, yeah, if I had bought a, a, a batch of ISBNs, this is something that's covered in the book too. But if I bought a, a batch of ISBNs, I could have applied one to this, and then it would have been I would have been listed as the publisher. Or if I created a clever name oh, for my you know, my imprint, then it would have been me, you know. What, what does ISBN stand for? I, I should know, but I don't, um, except there it is. Yeah. Okay. International yeah. serial book number or something like that. I, I Yeah. But yeah, all, all the books. Pretty, that's, I'm convinced. That sounds all right. the books on your shelves have an ISBN number. 
Yeah, all of the ones, much. if you yeah, if you sell them, there's a convention through bookstores that if you want to sell a book in a bookstore, it needs to have an ISBN. Now, technically, on if you sell it strictly through Lulu, your book doesn't have to have an ISBN. But if yeah. you want to, if you want to sell through, say, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or anyone else, then it's a requirement. It allows everyone just sort of to have a a number that they can use to know which book is which. And so every type of the book also needs to have a different ISBN, for instance. So um, if you if you have a a hardcover version and a soft cover version, for instance, then that would be a different ISBN or an ebook. The ebook has a different ISBN. Mm. So I, I'm I've been told, and I may be I just may be wrong, that all the big publishers actually do something like print on demand. In other words, they the old thing where it says, Oh, this is the first and second, third and fourth printing of a something that this is less relevant than it used to be because they're all capable of doing that. I don't even know if that's true or not. Do you know? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, what I, at least my experience the last time that I was publishing through a traditional tech publisher, at least, was mm -hmm. I got the sense. And a lot of this, they don't necessarily share with you, the author, on that yeah. side. You know, that's just that's something that they're handling. But I've gotten because I've had in the past uh, books sell out of a print run. And there has been discussions of new print runs that I get the sense that it's not 100% on demand, that they're doing some amount of printing in mass because it does take, you, you do, I mean, there's a difference in quality I've seen. Mm -hmm. While print on demand is getting much, much better and the quality is, is good when it's good. Be if you're doing one off, like printing one book at a time, you, you're not going to, for example, print the book once ahead of time and do a QA test. You know what I mean? Like if you're printing mm -hmm. a thousand of them, or a hundred of them, even you will, you know, you will do one and get it and get everything dialed in before you do the rest. So there is a, a little bit of a difference. There's a little bit of inconsistency, I guess. It's all within, you know, the all that stuff is within certain specs, and there are there's quality control and everything, but it is different. Um, I still think that in some cases, uh, I could be wrong, but at least some publishers definitely do a batch because they have a they know that they have a certain built-in demand whenever they release a new book that. X, these bookstores are each are going to want X number of copies, uh, so mm -hmm. they you know provide a certain amount at least. So, back to the you know something that I I kind of forgot to ask <laughs> about vetting an idea, but when you do the self go the self publishing route, um, you kind of have to do your own market research, I suppose. You know, again to to decide what's what's worth the time. Now, to be fair, and I feel like our reader our look reader. Our listeners should understand that you're you make it look easy <laughs> writing a book. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you know what what might take another person an entire year to get through. I think you it doesn't take you quite so long. So maybe the the, the cost is a, a little bit more reasonable. But if if I'm going to spend a year doing something, let's say writing a book, I want to know. You know, I, I guess I'd like to know that there's some demand for it. And how how do you figure that out? Well, and honestly, a couple of things. Well, one, that is why I, for a new author, I do strongly recommend you go through a tech publisher mm -hmm. or at least start by pitching all of the tech publishers uh, with your idea, with your book pitch. Mm -hmm. One thing you need to come up, you need to go through the process regardless of come, creating an outline that's a strong outline that you can use to guide the rest of the book and, and, and structure your ideas, your thoughts about the book, you know, into a, some sort of good format. Also, have the a pitch ready, which is the outlines part of. 
I think it's very important for a, a new writer to try traditional publishers first because there's just it's so much work already to write the book if they're doing their part of it. And it's even it's so much more if you're doing it all by yourself. Plus, it is just I can't understate the importance of having a good editor, especially when you're brand a brand new writer trying this for the very first time. Having the editor on that side that help that will help you not just with grammar and all that stuff, but just sort of walk you through the project like a project manager in many ways. It's just right. absolutely critical. And so having the, having publishers vet the ideas because they have tools that a self-publisher doesn't have. So for example, you know, if you want to gauge popularity of a topic uh, under the self-publishing umbrella, what you would do is the, the best you have is sort of like Amazon's sales rank, page rank for a thing, you know? So you go to a book and see how it ranks in various categories. And also just sort of search for what books are, exist on the topic. I did that for this one, for instance, and I saw that there actually, at least from what I could find, were no books about how to write a technical book. The closest mm -hmm. was there's some um, guides for technical writing in general, like articles and things, mm -hmm. or books on nonfiction self-publishing, but nothing really about technical books. And technical books are a 100% different beast. You know, there's... Yeah imprints and publishers that strictly do computer and technical books for a reason. But yeah, so to answer your question, I think all you have really is that sort of thing, Amazon rankings as an individual, but booksellers, or sorry, publishers have a whole other set of tools. In particular, they have subscriptions to a service called BookScan. And what BookScan gives them access to is what books are actually selling over the counter. You know, so they get data on which books, how books sold whenever they're they're purchased. And so they use that in addition to all the other metrics that they can get. So they know how well a book is selling. So if you pitch, for example, a publisher an idea and their competitor already has a book on the subject, but they don't yet, they can look at that competitor and say, oh yeah, that book is doing really well and we should probably get in on that. You know, we should have a book on the same topic. So that, you know, even though a book may already exist on the topic, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't pitch other publishers with a book on a similar topic with a different approach. So here's a question. And again, this is kind of for both of you, um, but you've you've written, you've co-authored books with other people. Mm -hmm. Correct. I mean, both yeah. of you have. I wonder what, how does the experience differ? Like if, again, if you're thinking about, okay, what, what do I have to, to write about? But but really, you're you're thinking of it, uh, thinking of it in terms of a, a group presentation. Let's say, um, how does the experience differ when you're when you're writing, when you're co-authoring? You know, a lot of books. You know, I've seen books that that have five different authors because they all take a different section. How does that experience differ? Well, so a couple of things. One, sometimes when a book is has five authors, it's because it's in multiple editions and the previous authors chose not to contribute to the next edition. Okay, sure. Uh, other times, yeah, if you have a collaboration, so I've, I have two different books in particular where I collaborated. So the first one was Ubuntu Hacks, where I wrote mm -hmm. that with Jonathan Oxer and Bill Childers. And uh, what we did there, because it was a hacks book, it was essentially divide and conquer. So each of us, uh, we came all came up with hacks that we wanted to write, you know, and so uh, just in case reader, the listeners haven't read a hacks book before, basically uh, it's a collection of a hundred tips or tricks. Um, it's almost like small articles in their own right. And so we took the topic of Ubuntu and then split it up into a hundred sort of tips. And each of us said, well, I can take that. I will take that sort of thing. And each of us independently did it. And we each contributed a certain percentage. And then uh, the book deal was 
distributed royalties essentially based on the percentage and the same for the title. So for example, Jonathan Oxer wrote uh, more hacks uh, than I did. So he had first billing. I wrote the second oh, most, okay. so I had second billing, stuff like that. And also royalties went the same way. For the official Ubuntu server book, um, I wrote the majority of it. And then there were a couple of chapters. So I wrote most of the chapters and then the remaining chapters, uh, Benjamin Mako Hill wrote. Mm -hmm. And so that was, mm -hmm. in both cases, mm -hmm. a lot of it was, was very similar to writing a regular book in that you're still independently writing the sections you're writing. It's just near the end that you are doing more collaborative work where you have other, the other authors are submitting their work and you're sort of reviewing it, you know, and you're, you have some level of consensus on who's doing what. Yeah. So I feel like people listening are, are going to want to know the same thing from Doc. So, <laughs> so you've written yeah. the intention economy and you've, well, you've been a co-author yeah. of Clue Train and, and all of these other things. How, well, Clue Train, uh, both of them are kind of special breeds of, the, of their own. Um, with Clue Train, um, we we knew an agent. The website was a big hit, um, and this is way before social media. It was nineteen ninety nine, um, but there was a lot of mojo around that, and there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal about it, and and basically publishers came calling, and we got an agent, and the agent agent actually was our first editor. He was the one who went through all of all of our stuff. And I mean, we, I remember, I mean, we each, each submitted like a bunch of chapters or a bunch of stuff. And, and he told us what was good, what wasn't, what goes where, um, and really brought coherency to it. So, and I don't even, don't even remember who the final editor was. We did not have an editor on that one. As far as I know, I think he was the guy, um, Kenny David Miller with, uh, Garamond, which is the agency, they're still there. They're still very good. Um, in the case of, so, so that's my one experience with collaboration there. Um, and we've met twice. The four of us met twice. There were only four of us in that case. Uh, but we had a lot of talks on the phone with, with the intention economy. Uh, um, I was, Basically, after giving a talk about title the intention economy, um, um, somebody in the audience, it was a small group, um, came up to me and he was from Harvard Business Review Press and said, you want to make that into a book? And I said, damn straight. And as soon as he said yes, I, I went to the same agent. I went to David Miller at Garriman and he, he took care of the rest. And I would love to say that I earned out the advance, but I have not. It is a, a kind of a worse seller. Did I tell you this? The Tim Ritter's Lee story? Yes, actually, yeah, but tell yeah. it again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> tell I'll it for the you people who haven't heard it. But, but briefly, <laughs> I, 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 Tim Ritter's Lee was at a thing that I was also at, and I didn't want to bother him. I, was, I asked him a question about high-energy high physics, and he inter interrupted me to say, uh, oh, The Intention Economy, wonderful book, great book. And then later, at another thing, he led on that, that inspired solid, this project that he's working on. And... If the book had only one reader, that's the guy to get. You yeah, know? yeah I mean, absolutely. That that was extraordinarily cool, uh, and that kind of made my week, you know. But um, and actually, what it did was it energized me to write some more. I've I've got several book ideas sitting around right now that I'm thinking about. So I'll I'll read your book 
<laughs> Kyle and, right, and, yeah. and decide which way to go with it because actually Harvard Business Review has kind of like first refusal on my next book, but considering that I haven't earned out much of the uh, advance, I don't know how that's going to go, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I love them. I loved working with them. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, yeah. Interesting. You bring that point. That's, that's a, the very traditional model, right? You get an advance and. Well, well you here's, to, a, you here's a hope you sell enough to justify it. Here's a weird circumstance. What I found over the last, well, really since, well, first with the success of blogging and then the crash of blogging and then the, the, the success of social media and social media kind of shunts um, one's energies to ground. I mean, oh, I'm already writing. I wrote a thing. I, I, I said something. I, I'm writing a lot of emails during the day. And I think with with Twitter kind of blowing up and social media in general being in a kind of a limbo state, um, well, everybody in our cohort say, let's all go to Federated and let's all go to like self, back to self-publishing in other ways. Um, I think it's actually a good time to write books. I think it, it may be, um, I mean, I'm finding that even though we have successfully migrated my blog from the Harvard server to my own, um, uh, to Searles.com and nothing got 404 in the midst, which is just freaking awesome. Um, that uh, it's still hard. I, I'm, I'm feeling a real urge to write books. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's just a weird thing that's just come on me. Like, yeah, I think I better buckle down and write some books. And it's, I don't know, did, are you, you seeing that in the water, Kyle, at all? I mean, first, I guess what I'm seeing is is people, the first level of migration is people migrating in some from social media back to blogging a little bit because they wanted something that was under more their yeah. control and that's more tangible, mm-hmm. right? But I think it's almost like seeing the move, everyone took a shift away from urban environments to one step a w- closer to living in the woods, you know? So people that were living in the city maybe are living in the suburbs now. People in the suburbs maybe got some property somewhere and then people that had some property are now like, homesteading so you know like everyone took a shift over Mm -hmm. and i think we're seeing a similar thing we're going to start seeing a similar thing here where people that strictly were just doing social media uh for little one-liners or things like or they're not even a one-liner basically a blog post that's a 23 thread tweet or whatever uh are now going to blogs and i think some people that already sort of had a blog are starting or you know are starting to see these other things like newsletters or podcasts Mm -hmm. um and books are part of it. And because now there's a lot more accessibility to a lot of the tools you need to write a book, and that I, I, I do think that you're, that some more people are, are looking into that as a form. I mean, it's, it's especially with self-publishing, but uh, mm. because there's there's a lot of tools out there to make it easy to, to take a book that maybe got rejected by, a, you know, you went, you, you farmed it out or you tried to pitch it to a lot of people and they don't see your vision or whatever you, or you want full creative control. The same reason that a lot of people move to their own blogs is they want their own platform. Right. Mm-hmm. And so some people feel the same way about their writing. Although again, it's much more beneficial if you're self-publishing, if you already have a platform and already have the background and the experience, you know, like for example, Udoc would be a great candidate to just completely, you know, run all of this yourself if you wanted, if you want, had the interest because you already have a platform, you already have readership and that sort of thing. 
So speaking of a platform, so the thing you, as Doc mentioned, you've got Twitter imploding and people are kind of, we're in a, a bit of a social media confusion. So how do, you, how do you promote a book today? I mean, what's what's interesting about it is that, you know, and I noticed that this threat, sort of this change throughout all of the different books that I published over the last couple of decades, publishers have, have so, sort of shifted more and more of the promotional burden onto the author. And this isn't just strictly in tech publishing. I've, I've noticed this in, you know, I have, my, my wife is also a writer and, but she's like a, a legit professional writer. And I've seen that. Well, who are you? Well, I but guess. She's a fiction I mean, writer. I know. I, I mean, I guess I think that is super legit. But it's real uh, writing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, for instance, you know, like in, in traditional writing, and this is something unique with technical writing, is that you don't necessarily have to have an agent. Like, I don't have an agent. Uh, it, a lot of times there's a direct relationship. And this is, I believe this is relatively unique with technical publishing for the in many, maybe some nonfiction publishings like this, too. Uh, outside of tech, but you don't necessarily have to have an agent. Uh, a lot of times the relationship is directly between you and a publisher. So you might pitch a publisher directly, whereas in other markets, you have to, like the they the agent has to be there to sit between you and the publisher. They're the ones that liaise with the, with a publisher uh, and the publisher won't pay attention to an individual for the most part. Um, but yeah, uh, how do you promote it? Part of it is, you know, having it helps if you have an existing platform. But but even with a publisher, nowadays a lot of times publishers are looking at what platforms an author already has, and a lot of the promotional work that they do ends up being uh, things like, you know, making sure that they have they have a, a suite of reviewers that they already have relationships with that already are well placed on say Amazon or other places, and that they will send a, a review copy to, and they know they can get reviews that way. Uh, the other thing that they might do, it, they might have relationships with bookstores where they can get the book on an end cap or preferred placement mm -hmm. somewhere potentially if they believe in the book and they and they need. To, in in particular, if they have put a significant advance behind the book and they want to recoup that, then they are willing to spend more marketing dollars. For your average tech book, it's more like um, if you go to a conference, for example, I'm uh, everyone listening to this around the mm -hmm. time you're listening to it. I'm going to be heading to DefCon. And, Me too. <laughs> yeah, and at, at DEF CON, for instance, No Starch traditionally has a big booth in the mm -hmm. expo, like the vendor area. And so if you publish with No Starch, uh, then you know that, uh, and you have a recent book, you know that you can get promoted there because you can go to the booth and they will do author signings and things like that. So all of those are things that sort of publishers do. And then as an individual, whether you have, like even with traditional publishers, you're expected to use whatever social media platform you have. And friends and family to get the word out, you know, and to do, for example, additional articles. So for, for this book, for instance, um, I'm going to be pitching articles on the unique aspects of writing technical books compared to other books to a couple of, uh, to a couple things in the industry. Um, podcasts like this are a great way if you have, um, if you either have relationships with existing podcasts or there are other podcasts within the market for your book, then that's a great way to get the word out. So because, for example, for this book, the market is anyone uh, involved with technology. If you bought a tech technical book at some point to learn a skill and you have some level of experience in something technical, then you're part of the market, right? There's there's a good chance you might have you might want to write a book yourself. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So speaking of DEF CON, if you're going to be at DEF CON, say hi. <laughs> um, I have stickers. 
And I have books. I will be handing out, I will be, you know, uh, I haven't figured out exactly how the promotion might work, but I'm going to have a lot of copies for you, for people to at least thumb through. Or if you find me and mention this, you know, and I have an extra book in my backpack, I might just hand it over to you. So, Oh, that's pretty cool. It's a little Easter egg. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I will also be uh, doing some interviews. So if that appeals to anybody out there, if you have an, a story to tell, please get in touch. Um, but yeah, Doc, yeah, I think you were about to say something. No, I just think, I, again, I just think it's a really, it's a really cool time. And I hope you guys yeah, <laughs> make stuff happen there, you know, between promotion and everything. I'll be really curious to see how it goes. You yeah, know, I, when, when you know, this different. is a whole other topic of conversation and not to completely derail us, but, but the whole, to- the whole subject of conferences, of course, you know, the last several years have been weird. And I think conferences are slowly trying to get back to normal, but they're not quite there yet. I will be interested to see just how big DEF CON is having, you know, the, the only other time I've been was 2019, just before all of this, you know, happened. Um, so I'm kind of curious to com- to compare just in terms of attendees and size and sprawl. And again, the only year I've, I've been, it was you know massive and overwhelming and crowded and, and so many different areas and so many things to learn and people to talk to. And I, I guess it'll be the same, but I suspect it will. I also haven't been since, uh, s- since yeah, COVID since that last year, uh, but yeah, I suspect it'll be, you know, it's it's always just a crazy, you know, and I'm, I'm yeah. sure it'll... People I'm, are desperate for that level of fun again. I mean, it's always been crowded and crazy, even, you know, I mean, maybe there, even if it's not peak attendance compared to whenever that peak was, it's been crowded and crazy forever, you know, so maybe yeah. this means you can actually walk down the hallway a little bit sometimes, you know, great. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's or still maybe gonna, get into one of those parties that instead of standing in a Or maybe attend a talk. Yeah. Maybe actually be able to yeah, go to a talk, right? you know, that you want to go to stuff like that. Not but from your hotel room. I mean, that's something that I do think that's something that not specifically DEF CON, but because they have sort of had this going for a while, but a lot of other conferences during sort of like uh, offices that didn't have a work from home plan or didn't have work from home infrastructure before COVID had to, by necessity, develop it. And then right. now there's hybrid work or there, you know, they have the infrastructure in place so people are able to do it. Conferences, I think, th- if they wanted to, to stick around, they had to do something similar and have some sort of remote uh, infrastructure yeah. in place so people could attend remotely or they could give the conference remotely. And I think even if they're doing in-person conferences, a lot of that infrastructure isn't necessarily going away. And so it means as an attendee, you have all of these extra options you maybe didn't have for some conferences before, like watching live streams of the thing as it's going mm-hmm. in some cases or um, or participating remotely. Some, I mean, some conferences are still offering sort of a hybrid environment where you can go in person, but you can also participate remotely. You know, some of the conferences I've been to recently, they had, they had remote streaming and then had people sending questions remotely uh, to the, the speaker, you know, which is kind of interesting. Again, not to completely <laughs> one eighty the uh, the topic, but um, I again something popped up popped into my head. It was one of my burning questions about about writing any book early, but a tech book. Um, can we talk just a little bit about self discipline. Yeah, and this 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 applies to to any field, frankly, any at any time of creation or, well, frankly, any type of work. But how do you? structure your writing time. I think yeah. this is a struggle for everybody. This is why why uh, NaNoWriMo or whatever exists, right? Force people to say, okay, I want to write something I'm going to write every day, right? 
how how do you do that and what do you you know what what do you tell people who've never written a book before yeah i mean that's that's sort of like the key initial part of the of the writing chapter in the book is not you know in general writing tips but more like how to structure your time it's the most critical part of beginning to write is figuring out the time because realistically anyone writing a tech book in particular already has a full-time job and that's what is inspired you know giving them the expertise mm -hmm. to write a book to begin with right and so you sort of start with this understanding that most people are going to have to figure out how to do this other thing that could be a full-time job at least while you're working on it uh, while you also have a full-time job and so you know time management is critical and so I give a lot of different advice because it's different for different people. And it's also different if you are single, if you are mm -hmm. living with someone else, or you have a full family with young children. You know, time management is completely different in all of those cases. So, and I've noticed that personally, you know, like when, when it was just myself and my wife and we were both working on books, we would just, you know, weekends, uh, she would go work on her book and I would go work on my book if I was in the middle of it. But in some cases, you don't have that freedom to do that. And also, so, so let me back up a little bit. The, the first thing is to understand your personal schedule and, and figure out how much time you need to set aside every week. And I, you, I recommend working on it every week uh, to get the book complete. And so at the beginning, you won't know how long it takes you to do something and how much time you need. But as part of pitching the book, generally speaking, you will need to have written at least one chapter in the book to submit to the, the publisher. And you can use your experience on writing that sample chapter to get a sense of how long did it take you to write 500 words, 1,000 words, 2,000 words. And, and you can use that as an estimate for how long it will take you to, to write the rest of the book in general. And then it's a divide and conquer thing, which again, it, it sounds like this huge, enormous task, which is why you have to just parcel it up. I mean, one of the recurring themes in my book is to divide and conquer, is to split it up into whatever the smallest chunk that's not overwhelming and intimidating is, and then do that. So if you are talking about time management, then um, if you have time outside of, uh, like during the week outside of work to devote an hour, then do that. However, what's, what's important to note about writing a book is there's, in particular, when you're doing the writing part of it, there, um, there's sort of like this upfront ramp up time that most people need to get into the mindset and to get into the focus that might take up to like, say, a half an hour to get into that frame of mind where you're actually doing productive writing. And if you're only budgeting an hour, say you're doing an hour a day, and it takes half of that time just to get into that mode of thinking, then you only get a half an hour of writing done. So I recommend most people try to at least once a week, map out um, a block of time. And for a lot of people, that might be the weekends uh, that you can do focused, distraction-free work where you can take that half an hour if it takes that long to get into that mindset of writing and organized and get all of the distractions out of the way, you know, close all of the apps, um, get your coffee or tea or whatever, get everything ready and then sit down with just a blank page and start writing. Because there's, there's a lot of it where it's just a matter of having a block of time. And then of course, there's other aspects of it, editing, um, doing what I call lab work that may or may not take large blocks of time. So lab work, whenever you're writing a technical book, and this is somewhat unique to technical books, although cookbooks are similar too, where you have to actually test out the things you're saying. And even if you've done it a million times, you need to open a, create a fresh lab environment that's like what, what the reader would have and test all of your steps yourself personally. 
and that takes time. You know, you have to yeah. budget that whatever it is. And any, you know, I've noticed any chapter that I have extensive instructions that need extensive lab work take longer to write because I have to budget the time to build the lab, test the thing. Sure. And, you know, so yeah, just like, yeah, you have to test recipes for a cookbook. The same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, if you're a morning person, then maybe it makes sense to wake up a little early and every day knock out a little bit of the work. If you can, if again, if, it, if you find the ramp up time to get focused, it doesn't take too long. But I say, I, I think for most people, it probably comes down to during the time where you're working on the book, uh, as, assume you're going to take at least one day out of the weekend, um, if not both, if you need to, to at least half, halfway through a day to work on, work, focus on the book full time uh, on the weekends just to have the time. Because again, most of us have, will have a day job during the week that we can't write during then. Setting out a time is important. I mean, it's just, I, it was almost impossible for me, but I did it. It was really hard because uh, I'm not very disciplined, and uh, but it helps. It really, really helps. I mean, it's it's hard to get keep getting podcasts out. Like, it's, Yeah. <laughs> frankly, so yeah. yeah. You just have to have a scheduled time because, and then the other thing is you get a scheduled time, you get, you get and ideally uh, you map out uh, milestones. So let's say you have a, a, you know, 10 chapter book, then and you have a due date, usually when you're working with a publisher, you have to estimate when's this book going to be done. And then you take that, and you get a calendar in front of yourself. And you say, Okay, well, if I'm going to complete this 10 chapter book by this date, let's say it's 10 months from now, then on average, I need to complete a, a chapter a month, right? And then you take, well, okay, I need to complete a chapter a month then how long, uh, how long, how much time do I need to budget per month to complete a chapter? How long will it take? And you just, you break it down into those chunks. Also understanding that life gets in the way sometimes and you will, you know, something will take longer than it and all of that sort of, that happens and delays happen in books all the time. But I mean, that's the only way to really approach it is to look at um, how, when you've committed to finishing it and then dividing it across the time you have between now and then just in setting the time. If you know that, the only way I will get a chapter or a month done is if I work on it six hours uh, every weekend, then make sure you allow that six hours every weekend and then um, and then have a little bit of wiggle room, understanding that every now and then you, that weekend you won't be able to work on it. Hmm. Yeah, always the battle with everything in life. <laughs> yeah, well, out the time. and it's easy again, it's easier if you're single and your time is, you know, 100%. However, you decided it. it's more difficult if you're if you are living with somebody else where you're you need to, you know, it's it's rude <laughs> to just squirrel yeah. yourself away for hours and work on something. Oh, is it? <laughs> and, and if you have a child, it's even more so, you know, it's it, I noticed a, a, a big difference in my how quickly I could write a book. And how much how productive I was before and after I had a kid, just because I can't just sequester myself away all weekend in an office and and just sort of work hardcore all day long on a book when you have a kid, because you know yeah. you don't want to just ignore they, they the kid eat and stuff. Well, and, and not <laughs> not even just that you want to make sure that the kid for emotional development and everything has your attention, but but also just the fact that if you're doing that, then. You're, then somebody else has to watch the kid during that time. And you have to, if you're, if that's your plan to write the book is that every weekend between now and when I publish the book, I'm gone and not taking care of the kid. You need to make sure that whoever is taking care of the kid's okay with that. Um, and you know, and how do you balance all of that? Yeah, it's all, it's all considerations. So, 
Um, yeah, so that's I that part of the chapter, I go over a lot of these different scenarios because it's going to be different for each person. You have to, you have to, I just basically have some general tips and guidelines uh, that you can apply to whatever your situation is. So basically setting realistic expectations, it's probably up there on the list of, of how to approach it. So is there, what have we missed? What have I'm we actually, missed I'm, here I'm, in the I'm conversation? I'm scanning through his book, actually. <laughs> ah, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I'm wondering what we've missed in the conversation about about how to write a tech book because frankly, I think this has been really well, useful so far. I, this is, I, th I think, going to be like a go-to podcast episode for people looking to write a tech book. Well, or so I hope anyway. What was the weirdest or the hardest part of it to write? Um, so and this actually goes to the one thing that we haven't really talked about much yet, which is formatting. And this is something uh, that is unique to tech books that you don't see a lot in pretty much all the other authors I've spoken with who write something other than computer and technology books don't run into this in the same way where, you know, traditionally, if you're writing a novel, you think about, okay, that's a paragraph. I might use italics and bold sometimes. I might underline something maybe, um, but that's about it. You know, that as far as formatting mm -hmm. goes. Yeah, nobody's formatting blocks of code. And, yeah. Unless it's a certain types of science fiction. Yeah, and, and but... Tech writing sort of straddles something between a traditional nonfiction book and academic writing, where there are these very specific formatting styles that are unique to tech publishing that you don't really see anywhere else, where it takes a significant amount of time and there's a significant learning curve the first time you do it, and that you don't even really realize it when you're reading it. When you're reading a, a tech book and you go through and you see a code block and it's formatted a certain way. I think most people see that and they don't really think about uh, what went into making it look that way and the fact that there's all these design cues that your brain sees even if you don't see it. So for instance, the, the best example is if you are writing um, a tech book and you're talking about typing something in a command line, a command line command that has output, all right? There's uh, tech books have code blocks which are in monospaced font and usually sometimes have lines that separate them from the rest of the text. So you can see that it's code. But if you're typing in the command line, in addition to setting something as a code block, you also, whatever you're typing is traditionally bold. Um, on top okay. of that, if you're, whatever you're typing, if it's an argument that's a, that's variable, which means what I type in the book, whatever you type as the reader will be different based on your circumstance. You don't explicitly type verbatim what I'm saying. It's bold and italicized. And then the output is neither bold nor italicized. And these are all just things that you wouldn't realize if you're a reader necessarily, but your brain does. Because after mm. you get through a technical book, you get toward the end and you see something, you realize, oh, wait, I realized that that's the thing I type in to the command line. And the rest of it, I don't type in. Uh, all the this output is not something I verbatim type in. It's just output, right? Uh, all of that is something that's unique to tech writing that it takes a significant learning curve. I mean, it's so much so I devoted an entire chapter to it because it's, okay. it takes, you know, it's a, if you have not been exposed to it, it's a big thing to learn. Um, so that's even just if you have a traditional publisher, because each of them has their own set of special tools to help an author format text, even though they're not formatting a print ready proof, they are creating, usually it's a word doc these days with special templates that each publisher has spent tons of time developing where you can, 
even things like uh, headers, not just headers, like first and second and third level headers, but also things like bulleted lists. Sometimes there's special things that you do to bulleted lists in a tech book for certain publishers so that they get design cues for their designer to do special things when it's being printed. All of that's a whole field of its own. And so I think the most challenging thing for me for this book was not just talking about the formatting styles, which was, was not that challenging, but I have a whole section of it um, from the self-publishing angle, because what I learned when I was writing my previous book was how to not just format something using these formatting styles, but also how to do it for a print-ready proof, which is a whole other ballgame that I never had to do before. And in my case, I did it using LaTeX. So I have a whole section of the book that's specifically how to, if you're self-publishing, how to use a LaTeX book template that I use for this book um, and how to format everything using LaTeX so that it looks really professional when you're done. So, so tell us about LaTeX because uh, I'm, I'm, I've not written with it. What is it exactly? Yeah, so LaTeX is a markup language similar to, let's okay. say, HTML or Markdown or things like that. Um, it's pretty similar to HTML in the sense that there's these weird symbols sometimes that you use in words that say what a particular piece of text is. So like an HTML, you would have an H1 tag that you would wrap around something that's a header, uh, mm -hmm. the, a first level header in the document. And you might have a P tag for a paragraph in HTML. In LaTeX, uh, instead of H1, there's a, a, you basically have a tag kind of in front of it that says this is a section. And then there's a mm. subsection and a sub-subsection. But you basically just say that and then wrap things in curly braces instead. It, the syntax is different, but the thought is the same, where mm. you have text and then you add <clears throat> markup to tell uh, the program what type of text it's going to be. And then after you finish doing that, you then the difference between that and HTML is that you run this uh, command to compile that into a PDF, essentially, at the end. Uh, that is properly formatted. It handles all of this heavy lifting for you. So for instance, uh, in my book, I said that things are chapters with the title of the chapter. I, I said that there are sections, subsections, et cetera, but I didn't number them and I didn't create a table of contents. LaTeX did all of that for me because when it read the document, it knew, okay, that's a chapter. Okay, if that's the first one, it's chapter one. If it's the second one, it's chapter two, et cetera. Um, and mm -hmm. it's all the sections underneath and knew, okay, that section belongs to this chapter. So it was able to build the table of contents for me uh, because of that. So, but all of that is something I had to do a crash course in when I wrote my previous book. Uh, and so I have a whole section about all of that, basically give you a crash course in formatting something with LaTeX like I did. Uh, the most challenging part of this book was the appendix. So in the mm -hmm. appendix, I thought, the, the easiest way to understand LaTeX is to see actual LaTeX code yourself. So I have an appendix that shows the entire first section of chapter five, which is the formatting chapter, the raw code for it. All right. So having the raw code wasn't the hard part. It was escaping all the raw code in <laughs> LaTeX so that I could format it in <laughs> LaTeX as code without it, it interpreting it itself. Um, that was pretty tricky. Yeah, I actually wondered when I looked at it, having had similar experiences, you answered that one for me. So I, I think we've covered it, man. I think... Uh, yeah, there's a lot there. This is great. I think anyone who needs to, wants to write a tech book, this this is so much good information. And then part two is buy the book. I don't, well, I don't mind the shameless plug. I can do it for you. We need tech books. <laughs> we need tech books for people, so... Yeah. You know. 
And when we need tech books from like people that have fresh expertise on something, you know, there's all kinds yeah. of emerging technology and just and new new authors out there and people who have a great idea, but just didn't know what to do. Uh, don't know what, I, to, I do. what how to make a book out of it, you know? I like the accessibility of self-publishing, right? For people who might have a voice that is that is not, that doesn't have an outlet. And again, all, the only barrier to entry is, is time. And I think that's true of, of other media as well. But but I think it's important to the, the idea that anybody could write a book given the free time, which is not necessarily an easy thing to have. But I, I, I do appreciate that angle. I think, um, yeah, anyway, I would like I would like to see what other information people can share out there in book form as a result. Yeah. And, and while the book is aimed at traditional publishers, because I do think a new author gets a lot of benefit from that infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, Every section also talks about how the same topic applies to self-publishing. So, yeah. you know, when I talk about how to, you know, cre even create an outline, you create an outline not just to pre prepare a book pitch for a publisher, but for yourself, you know, in writing mm -hmm. the book. When I talk about how to, how to, what the publishing process is like with a traditional publisher, I also talk step by step through how to publish a book on Lulu, uh, which yeah. is the one I have the most familiarity with. So I use that as an example, but um, you know, how to do that if you want to go the self-publishing route. Yep, I like it. A historic item is that uh, Lulu was started by Bob Young, who started Red Hat, and before that was the very first editor of Linux Journal. And it's a great platform. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed using it so far. I mean, I've, I've looked at a couple of different platforms. What I liked about it, and I, I make a big point in the book to not necessarily promote or pitch any particular imprint or publisher or anything. Um, but for my constraints, I found what I liked about Lulu as an imprint for my books is that they did all of the things that I didn't necessarily want to do myself, and it, it was really easy to do. So the things I didn't necessarily want to do myself was figure out print-on-demand. I didn't want to set up an e-commerce storefront for myself, you know, things like that. I wanted someone else to handle, okay, here's my, here's my ready-to-go formatted PDF book. And here's how I would like, and they even have cover design tools and things so you can easily make a cover. Um, but then take that and you get it into Amazon and get it into Barnes and Noble or, and also create a storefront on Lulu, which is much preferred uh, that you can, where someone can sell the book. Cool. That's great. Well, I, I would love to know, you know, if anybody actually even starts the process of writing a tech book after listening to this. So, so if you're listening and you, you start writing, let us know. Yeah, please do. Please contact me. Yeah. But we, we know a guy who can give you some great advice. So thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been a really great episode, if I don't say so. I mean, I can't really take any credit for it because it's all Kyle and Doc. But um, I've enjoyed asking you the questions. May, maybe I'll add writing a, a tech book to my bucket list. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, you so, sure? yeah, thank, I, I should. I mean, maybe, maybe I know some stuff after all these years. Definitely. <laughs> So thank you everyone for listening and uh, we will talk to you next time. Bye.